Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. Happiness is a continuum. It's part of what we should be experiencing. It's not a state of being. And that we can only help our employees to be motivated if we're, you know, helping them to be well in the first place. You know, and we've been sort of throwing ice cream to people that need water. Hi, this is Mark Devine, and you're on the Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. Guests include notable folks from all walks of life, including meditation monks, blockchain security wizards, survivors of extreme adversity, and social scientists who study things like burnout, like my guest today, Jennifer Moss. We're going to talk about her new book, The Burnout Epidemic which is triggered by many factors that we need to understand and we need to keep an eye on, looking for symptoms that show up so we can take care of ourselves and as leaders, transform our cultures and our systems so that we are more healthy and we avoid things like burnout. Jennifer is an award-winning journalist and author, international speaker, and workplace culture strategist. The Burnout Epidemic was named 10 Best New Management Books in 2022 by Thinkers50 and shortlisted for the 2021 Outstanding Works of Literature Award. Her earlier book, Unlocking Happiness Work, received the Distinguished UK Book Award, UK Business Book of the Year Award. She's also a nationally syndicated radio columnist and writes for Harvard Business Review. Her work has appeared in Time, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post, amongst others. Super stoked to have you here, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate your being on the Mark Divine Show. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It'll be a great conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's such an important topic, but... Uh, one thing I would really like to do is get a sense. You're you're up in Canada. You're Canadian by birth. I am. Yeah. Yep. Give us a sense of your, um, you know, your formative influences in childhood, parents, you know, education. What led you down this road to be, you know, a psychologist to be studying things like burnout? It's a unique path. It is, and it is pretty circuitous. I think. I mean, I studied really wanted to be a writer and studied journalism, and then ended up loving the behavioral sciences piece. And I think the storytelling factor played a big role. And, and you know, I was young, I was always writing, always reading. I was uh, at grade four, I said that I was going to be um, a Newbery Prize winner, I decided when I was nine, which isn't actually award for children's books, literature, and just big literary award. And I decided and I even put it in one of those time capsules right. in our you know front yard of our, our schools. You know, it was kind of a, a decision very early on that that's what I wanted to do, which is interesting. Did it ever come to pass or is it still a goal? Then? No. Well, I've never won a Newbery Award. No, I haven't written children's book, but I'm on my third published book, which is great. So so I've become an author, but not what I expected to be writing nonfiction leadership books around, you know, uh, burnout and, and happiness and well-being. But, you know, my mom was a nurse practitioner, a very kind of healing person. She was a first practitioner, nurse practitioner in Canada, actually, like in the history books, really fought to get rights to be able to practice this type of medicine. And it was her, I think, that really did drive this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and thinking about having no boundaries and that, um, you know, I had a voice, I wasn't an imposter. And you go through that a lot, I think, in this world of writing books on this topic without a PhD. But, you know, the, the probably 20,000 hours I've spent in research focused on this topic is, I think, made it so that I can talk you know, as an expert to it, but I think I talk to it passionately because my own experience going through burnout and really 
understanding what it's like to play, you know, this juggling role of mother, of, you know, advocate, of of female co-founder in a highly male-dominated world. All of those things really played into my own burnout cycle, and it made me want to be able to write this book. So before we get into the topic of burnout and our implications for our culture today, let's talk about your early career and maybe your experiences with that, you know, with burnout and what it was like, what your experience was, how it affected you and your family, all that. So let's make it personal first. Yeah. You know, and it really is burnout. And ironically too, I'm writing this book in the middle of a pandemic, which with three kids, there was a lot of, you know, constant irony as the burnout expert (laughs) feeling extraordinarily burned out. But yeah, it, it started really early on for me, this, it's interesting because I was in Silicon Valley in those early days of social media and people were kind of saying it was going to be nothing, you know, like, and, and trying to advocate to people that really didn't want to listen that, you know, we, we needed to get our team on Twitter and we needed to engage in LinkedIn and some of these other components. I remember these executives saying like, no one's going to take this seriously. This is the stupidest thing ever. Like, can you imagine a president tweeting? And <laughs> I said, <"Fuck." laughs> that's hilarious. And I think, oh, I wish maybe we could backtrack at this point now. Maybe I wouldn't have been such an advocate, but I think I've always been really connected to things that people don't think are really going to happen or important, or I don't know, maybe I like to be an underdog. But then I got into this concept of, of well-being and happiness and how you know, maybe we can actually focus on being happy at work that we don't all have to be disengaged and depressed and kind of be weekend warriors. You know, I've been working in sort of HR services and communications and then realized, I think we should research this. And there was this precipitating moment in my life where my husband, who's a pro athlete, played pro in two different sports, actually represented Canada in four different international medals. He got very sick. He ended up becoming acutely paralyzed from Guillain-Barre syndrome. Oh, wow. Had West Nile and had contracted, you know, swine flu twice, just completely debilitated his whole body and everything changed in a moment for both of us, you know, his identity. And we were living in California at the time. And this sort of shocking awareness that, you know, everything can change in a moment and you're still forced to go to work and you're still, you're still expected to you know, be competitive and high performing and still work at those same hours. And, you know, there's very limited grief policies and care policies weren't even in existence at the time. And there just weren't a lot of protections. And we sort of had this moment where it was like the things we were talking about were being realized. Um, And that kind of brought us back to Canada because we were living in California then and brought us back to Canada and reset our priorities and and started up our company, which was a sort of a focus on well-being and and taking that thinking into the workplace. But as a female co-founder and a married co-founder, it was really a challenge to find funding. And again, we're in this uphill battle. And that was a moment where I thought, no matter how committed you are sometimes to a purpose or a meaning or a goal, and you feel really good about it, you're going to constantly face these challenges. So how do you develop the psychological fitness the social emotional flexibility, the emotional intelligence to really get over it. And it took me going through burnout, took me through going through these life challenges before I I figured out, I think, a path to being able to do, you know, do this in a way that's sustainable and healthy. So you mentioned, you know, your your husband manifested his burnout, obviously physically through decreased immune system, autoimmune issues, disease, 
breakdown physiologically. How did you manifest your burnout? Because it, it shows up in many different ways, as you know. And I'm just curious, like from your perspective, and then how, how else would others recognize burnout if they're not familiar or if they're in denial about it? Well, it's interesting because a lot of entrepreneurs and people, you know, in this role, especially in a startup role, but in a even a stay up or anyone that's at a leader of their own kind of <laughs> their their own goals, they're not very good at being their own boss. They're not great at saying, okay, you need to take a break or you're not good at telling yourself, okay, you're overworking. You feel strongly committed to the mission. You feel almost married to it. Failure becomes not an option. You also are passionate about it. You love the work and this whole idea that, you know, you love what you do. You never work a day in your life is just such a total myth. And you actually work really hard and people at most risk of burnout tend to be really passionate about the stakeholder or their job or their work. And I also felt like I was in this unique role. There was only 7% of females that get funded in tech and their companies that they're co-leading or leading. And so I felt this responsibility to then advocate, you know, and be in on boards and be talking about this role that women have to play. And I ended up taking on sort of that responsibility, which meant I left very little room for myself and self-care. And I don't believe that burnout is solved with self-care alone. But when you are your own boss, you do have to model the behavior to the people around you of self-care or else no one really follows suit. So you start to churn up a whole culture of, of burnout. And that's sort of what we created. And you know, I'm running this happiness technology company, a company that's trying to solve, you know, workplace stress and increase well-being at work. And I was just this walking contradiction. <laughs> and I hated that. I was, I felt really, you know, upset with myself. Yeah, almost like a fraud. Yeah. Or yeah, I can imagine yeah, how it would be. I felt like a fraud. You're right. I felt like, okay, how am I the expert when I'm not following any of my own rules? And so I ended up having a break physically, emotionally, I was completely exhausted. I was emotionally distanced. I didn't want to connect with the goal anymore. I didn't care about it. I stopped caring about being happy. I didn't care about the things that made me happy about the work. The things that I used to love, I stopped loving. And the depletion, really, the exhaustion was a big part. So I just had to leave, you know, leave the thing that I had built and take a six month break and really figure out what. I was going to do. And it came with, you know, financial stress and emotional stress and relationship stress. So, you know, there was, there's consequences and they can be catastrophic for people. And we kind of downplay burnout. But I know for myself, after going through that and realizing how much risk, you know, I'd put in my, to my life and my family that, you know, I didn't want other people to have to have it be too late before they made a change. Right. That's so fascinating. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. First, like burnout came in waves, right? And I think that's really interesting right perspective because you guys had a burnout moment in California. So you go back to your smaller town in Canada, closer to family, and you think, well, that change in location, change in setting is going to solve a lot of problems. It can help, right? But it's not the be all end all. So then you start your business. Now that begins a second phase where you're leading up to disaster because the, the pressure and the stress you take on as a founder, startup founder, and I, I've been there several times myself, where you are responsible, right, for capitalizing the business, for the employees, for the, the client work, for your own financial well-being. And all of a sudden, when people have a job, they're responsible for their productivity. 
basically for their output. But when you run a business, you're responsible for about 10 other things that are, are suddenly the weight, and, the, and it sounds great, right? The freedom of owning your own business and the potential for a higher financial return sounds great, but it comes with a very high tax. And that tax leads a lot of business owners into burnout. They're unaware of it or they're not acknowledging that when they go into it, right? So they don't know how to structure their time. They don't know how to structure their relationships. They don't know how to set proper boundaries. All of these things start to, you know, poke their head into the game and, and contribute to that situation. You really do see that with entrepreneurs very distinctly. And I learned a lot. I took a lot away from that first experience of, you know, and just understanding, you know, what is sustainable growth for me? I mean, the expectation of growth when you're in a kind of a tech community and this idea of investors and and even just how I'd fund my business, how I funded, you know, going into this next phase of where I'm evolving and realizing that when you have external pressures, it changes what you need to be able to produce. And really going through, you know, this trial by fire has been considerably helpful in my later experience because I realized, okay, what really matters? I started to come up with this schematic of, you know, prioritization and it was deathbed regrets, you know, like (laughs) it's such a morbid way of thinking about it. But I started thinking, okay, this decision to take on this project, even though it sounds fun and I'm so excited by it and this sounds great and this could offer this much, you know, increase in capital here. I started to go, okay, well, how much will that take me away from my family? How much of a learning curve is this? You know, do I want to be learning right now or do I want to have mastery? Because right now mastery is actually quite efficient and, you know, learning is exciting, but how much is reasonable? You know, what is it vertical, you know, the learning curve or could I easily move over into this space and it not be too challenging? You know, how many meals am I going to miss with my family? How much travel am I going to do? And so I think about what that would mean? And would it be a deathbed regret if I said no? And, and, you know, many times it's, it isn't. And, and, you know, you say no, and you feel like, oh, that opportunity is gone, or I missed it. But then, you know, the FOMO goes away. And, and then you get back to what, you know, the joys of being able to participate in your life. And so I think that's been a real, you know, growth moment for me. Definitely. And I want to kind of highlight this point, because it's so important. We're not really taught to say no in our culture. And in a way I look at it, at the other side of every yes is a large, long series of commitments and obligations and stress. On the other side of every no is a release of pressure and an opportunity for a better yes. And so one of the most important qualities to develop as a leader is knowing when to say no, to leave space for the, you know, for the yes, for the better yes, which is kind of what you're saying. But we're not taught that. And there's a lot of... Um, pressure to say yes, especially early on in a startup or for a lot of leaders, because we want to please, we want to do the right thing. We want to make money. You know, we want to please our investors. So it's very challenging to develop that no muscle, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I've been um, following again, another one of my favorite quotes is you can have uh, anything, not everything. And I, and I think that, you know, like we have, it's always about a choice. And, you know, I was trying to teach my daughter that the other day, because she was wanting to either stay at the cottage or go to a birthday party. And it was like, you know, she said, you know, I wish you had this really delicious apple and it was so great, you know, and then now you've offered me an orange and I like the orange just as much. And I wish you hadn't even ever offered me the orange. She's nine. She's being very philosophical about this. And I said, that's life is a lot of, you know, choosing between two great things or 10 great things or, you know, even 
five bad things. I mean, like, you know, and you're choosing the the lesser of all evils. I mean, this is, this is life. It's a series of making difficult um, choices. And for her, you know, it's between the birthday party or the cottage. And for us, it's, you know, major life decisions, but you just start to understand that there's lots of pathways that we can take and really knowing, I think, who you are and probably why I like the age I'm at and where I'm at in my career is that have a better sense of who that is. And I do have the privilege of being able to make those choices. You know, one of the things that causes a lot of burnout for young professionals and for the BIPOC community and people that are maybe at risk is that they don't feel that they have the privilege of saying no, or that they can make those choices, that it's impossible for them to turn down that work because they'll get fired. I mean, that's the real issue is that we get to a place and there's some of us that have those choices and can make those choices. But there's a lot of people in the workforce that don't even, you know, don't even have that kind of power and privilege to make those decisions. I think it's a generational thing, Jennifer, because it seems like Gen X and, you know, people entering the workforce now have a lot easier time saying no, (laughs) or, you know, that's not for me, or, you know, this whole great resignation, a lot of it's coming from the younger generation, you know, basically finding it much easier to say no to a workplace that's toxic or to a job that doesn't meet their vision or mission or it doesn't have an impact mission and those things. I definitely think that there's an empowerment right now with our younger workforce and they're saying, I don't want that carrot that badly. You know, like what you have defined as a track for success for me or what you're defining as my future isn't the future I want. And so I don't necessarily need to make these choices to give up all this other, these other important parts of my life for it. It's like we're learning now after however many years into a place where we might have a little bit more tenure and ability to have those choices. They're saying, I'm not even going to follow that path for 20 years until I can have those choices. I'm going to choose now to figure out what other job I can do. There's, you know, freelancing, there's gig economy, there's a bunch of different jobs that you can put together so that you have freedom, you have uh, a lot of, uh, you know, benefit from the from the great resignation and that there's high, high, you know, rates of employment out there, there's lots of opportunities for you to move. And so I think that bit of a revolution is happening right now with our younger workforce. And they're just saying, well, you better figure out what is the future that I want, because I'm not going to give you what you you want for me to get there. It's neat. And it's also, I mean, it's largely made possible because of this changing nature of work. And and so much of the economy now is part-time gig, freelance, uh, all that type of thing, you know, driving Ubers while you're starting. You know, there's so many opportunities that just didn't exist for me at least, and I'm imagining for you and your younger years. So it's neat to see that. And also, so that has helped shape their attitude about, you know, what's possible. And then also culturally, there's a lot of change. I noticed that your your first book, you titled Unlocking Happiness at Work. And now your latest book is The Burnout Epidemic. It almost seems like they're two different polarities of the same issue. Or is one, is the burnout kind of the sequel to happiness, just looking at it from the other side? 
Yeah, it's funny because I have joked that I was, you know, in my tagline, happiness expert, and now I'm the, you know, the unhappiness expert. It's sort of depressing. Suddenly you're not so happy. <laughs> the evolution of my career is sort of sad and <laughs> disappointing. That's kind of like life itself. You know, you go through these waves, right? That's exactly it. And you know what? You're your most unhappy in your 40s, I guess. It's the least in the curve. It's like the lowest part of your joy. And like 70 is when you're your happiest of all time. So right. we're all in an upswing, which is is good, I guess. But, but um, no, it's funny, because it's sort of, it is basically looking at it, you know, and just two sides of the equation. But what I think what unlocking happiness at work was, was, and I, I sort of say it's like a bit of a naivete in this, like, looking at it and thinking, okay, we can just start at this place of optimization. And that's where I think of a lot of people in happiness really we're looking in that social emotional intelligence, that resiliency place, the gratitude place and, and psychological fitness, which we should all be practicing as part of who we are. Self-care is important. It's part of what increases lifespan and healthiness. And that's in our personal lives. But it is a realization. It was for me through those, you know, years of working with organizations that it ended up making people feel like leadership was tone deaf or that there was this toxic positivity that was being expected of their staff and saying, okay, and ignoring the root causes of stress, which is chronic stress, which is and burnout, which are out of their control. And it was really in 2019 when the World Health Organization identified burnout as institutional or occupational stress left unmanaged, that it's a workplace phenomena that really did click for me. And I've been writing about stress and burnout and and how it impacts well-being and happiness inside of workplaces for a while. But this announcement was was made to get people to think seriously about it, you know, and understand that happiness is a continuum. It's part of what we should be experiencing. It's not a state of being and that we can only help our employees to be motivated if we're, you know, helping them to be well in the first place, you know, and we've been sort of throwing ice cream to people that need water. And that is where we've really gone wrong. And so a lot of my focus is, okay, yeah, I want you to get to the point where all of those awesome things, those perks, those, you know, the subsidized gym memberships, the, you know, the chef on site, the more yoga and breathing and calm apps and all those things are actually going to work for you because you are in a place that has time and energy and wellness and healthiness enough to support actually engaging in those tools. And that became, okay, I just started, this book is just more further upstream on the continuum of how we actually improve well-being and healthiness for our workforce. Yeah. And I can see a very integral approach is necessary. Like you said, you have to solve this at the personal psycho-emotional level, but you also have to solve it at the family kind of structural health level, you know, in terms of, you know, routines around sleep and nutrition and exercise. So that's the external of the eye or the, you know, and then you have to solve it at the team level and to solve it at the organizational structural level. And if you leave any one of those unaddressed, right, then you're going to leave some underlying trigger for burnout to remain. So how do you look at it in terms of a Maybe it's more awareness, but do you provide kind of a prescription in terms of uh, some places to start? Because there's a little bit of a chicken and egg, right? If you just do you solve the psycho-emotional first and then look at the structural or, or do you have to do them all together? Or how do you look at this? 
Well, you know, and a, a lot of what I think first has been provocative is I've been pushing back on accountability at the leadership level and the organizational level to fix those root causes. But simultaneously, I mean, we can't have learned helplessness. We have to, as individuals, be able to still show up. And there's certain personalities that are very high risk for burnout, like those that are perfectionists or those that have trait neuroticism or those that are in, you know, high performing, high competitive, high production focused roles. You know, medicine to doctors tend to have that mix of different personality traits that puts them at risk of burnout. So a lot of it is still... It's not on the individual to solve, but they play a role. I mean, the, everyone plays a role, but but we have to do, if we're doing the work, the last thing that we can have is ha- going into, you know, the coal mine essentially and getting sick and coming out. And then we're being told, okay, we're not a warning signal. We're just to be sent back in and continue to be sick. And so our employers need to say that, okay, I'm not going to, necessarily be responsible for your life satisfaction and your happiness, but I'm responsible for not detracting from it. And so I have to make sure that there's supports in place so that if you are practicing psychological fitness, emotional intelligence, that you're coming to work with self-care routines and modeling self-care, then I'm not going to just say, okay, well, it's on you to solve your burnout after I give you 80 hour work weeks or unsustainable workloads or if you're coming into discriminatory practices or, you know, an exclusive environment that doesn't promote you because of the color of your skin or, you know, or you're lonely, we've isolated you and you have no connections, you've been bullied at work. I mean, all of these things play into why someone's burning out. And so just the way we've tackled it so far is just saying, okay, well, here, listen to this rain for 15 seconds on an app. And that here, this is your the the silver bullet technology that we're going to solve for, you know, you not even being able to go to the bathroom because you have to work, you know, 15 hours today without a break. So these are the things that we need to juxtapose and remedy so that everyone's kind of in the same mindset around making work a healthy place. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Yeah, in the realm of behavior science and within an organization, we're talking about culture. And it sounds to me like I'm thinking as you're talking, the structural stuff, such as paid leave, paid time off, having a yoga studio at the office, you know, those types of things, those are fairly easy to implement, relatively speaking. You know, and I would say this, if companies did a good job of that, then it wouldn't need to be regulated, but they haven't. And so now you have a lot of regulation coming in. Still, those don't solve the problem if there's major cultural issues, right? Because you could have all that stuff and still have a culture that's toxic, still have a culture that, that rewards, you know, hyper work ethic or whatever you want to call the hyper achievers who get rewarded for working 80 hours a week. Well, if you don't, then you're not rewarded. And so that creates a lot of stress for someone who thinks that's not healthy for them. So I guess the question then for leaders is, how do we go about changing a culture? Because that's extremely challenging, as you know, because that's your work. <laughs> it's extremely difficult. And, and you know, as long as it's taken for burnout to get to a boiling point is probably as long as it's going to take to, you know, point to take it even down to neutral. We've really, this has been a mostly transactional relationship that we've had with work and uh, where employees have had 
no rights to a few rights to increasingly, you know, accessing rights. And we've mostly only had physical protections and policies. And now we're finally getting to psychosocial policies, but that's, there's not even a standard in the US and most countries. There's only a few Australia and Canada have sort of psychosocial um, standards, but that's very new. What do they look like, by the way? That's a new term to me. For example, when it comes to um, exclusion, discriminatory behavior, those types of things, yes, we get that. But it's around policies, you know, like similar, like we'd have, how do you climb a ladder properly or what boots to wear on the factory floor? You have, okay, this is how you manage um, harassment physical harassment, sexual harassment, and then, you know, which is a kind of the, the first psychosocial policy to really come into place. We've seen that in the last decade or so, where we're actually getting training and there's policies and expectation, but even newer ones are like right to disconnect policies. There's laws now in several countries. There's a law now in Canada that just got instituted where you can't expect an employee to work outside of their working hours. You can't digitally, like you can't email them. You can't, call them. You can't expect them to take meetings after certain hours. And so this right to disconnect policy is saying, okay, we have created this standard around what is considered normal working hours. And if you go over that or off of that, then you could be sued. And this is the actual government policy. I've got to change my behavior. You just... It just triggered a thought. I was like, I'm always emailing my team after hours. Now, I don't expect them to respond. I actually expect them to respond, you know, during work hours. But I can see how that would set up a, you know, an improper expectation on their part. For me, it's just to get a task done and it's on my mind. So get it off my mind, you know. Yeah, it creates invisible pressures. And then people that right. can answer well, and that, then you create exclusive right. behaviors because there's some... I mean, we saw this this disproportionate impact on women who take on just, again, disproportionately a lot of the caregiver roles. So when they're putting kids to bed or their bath time, if there's an email that goes out from their boss and most of their male counterparts can answer, but they can't, then it creates this separation where they're not working as hard. And it's all bias and, you know, and history that we don't even realize is part of our, the way that we perceive people. But that is what kind of psychosocial policies is an example of that. That's what's starting to kind of go. There's lots of European countries. France was the first to start it in 2016. So it's still really new. But over the last six years, we've started to see more standardization around safety, essentially, like psychological Mm -hmm. safety, not just physical safety. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And we're going to see more people suing because they burned out or you know, and that's going to create then more psychosocial policies and standards to say, okay, well, how do, what do we define as burnout? What do we define as preventing that and the protections around that? And I see that becoming something that's um, really interesting in the leadership, organizational risk assessment, HR space in the future of work for sure. The last two, three years have obviously been a big contributor to burnout because there's a lot of social and economic and political stressors that suddenly invaded our both personal and professional lives. And then we thought, okay, when things get back to normal, all that will settle down. But we didn't really return to any old normal. So what do you see now, the impact of remote work and, you know, endless Zoom or Microsoft team, you know, meetings and, you know, uncertainty? How is that affecting burnout? And what can we do about that, if anything? It's still exhausting people. We seem to kind of think like, okay, 
we're getting to a new normal and there's, it's not, it's not a new normal. It's, I said, there's no future of work at this point. It's the metaverse of work or the multiverse of work. Like we're in a pair, another paradigm. Like this is not at all what we would have evolved to just naturally. There was this cataclysmic event. We went from 4% of the entire global workforce, 4% to 35% of the global workforce working remotely within a week. Like just dramatic increase. We've, you know, 10x the amount of adoption of teletherapy and telemedicine. We've just had these massive rapid shifts in a very short amount of time, which has changed our behaviors. It's changed our our mortality. I mean, we we went through periods of time where I say we're in the first sort of level of Maslow's hierarchy needs where we were mm-hmm. actually in a state of survival on some days, you know, protecting our family, protecting our own health. And when you go through that, your social contract with work changes. It's no longer transactional. It's like, okay, I want something different in this relationship, right? And I mean, we also increased meetings. I mean, meeting fatigue was always a problem, a massive problem before. Just the l- lack of etiquette and people going over in meetings and a person dominating the entire meeting by speaking, you know, in just themselves, like lots of issues around that before pandemic. We have actually increased the number of meetings. This is just Teams meeting data, Microsoft Trends data, by 252% more meetings in the last <laughs> two years. Wow. Like Interesting. And Zoom went from, you know, around 10 million daily active users. And within a month, they went to 300 million daily active users. It's a total different shift. And so we haven't really paused and said, okay, is this actually what we want in this metaverse of work or future work? Do we actually want to be this collaborative? And is it really actually making us more efficient? And or are we just working more hours and feeling like we need to be toxically productive? And it's not necessarily increasing shareholder value or revenue or well-being. Um, and that's something that we need to start thinking about. It's why people are quietly quitting and why people are resigning. Because this just isn't sustainable. I agree. It's interesting, and I, this this is going to go a little off track, admittedly. But when I pan out, it's almost as if decisions are being made for us by some technocratic, you know, overlord or elite that is driving humanity toward this metaverse kind of connected, digitally, you know, avatar kind of environment, which is, you know. From our discussion, I don't think you believe that's a healthy thing, and I certainly don't believe that's a necessarily a healthy thing or what human beings are needing or wanting, right? Human beings want connection. They crave on being outdoor. They thrive, I should say, being, being in outdoors environments or hybrid environments and human connection. They need time off. You know, our, our native ancestors, you know, quote unquote, worked for four hours a day, roughly, you know, but the rest of the time they were doing things like play and learning and things that were human. And so I think it's time for us as a human community to like really step up and say, wait a minute, we have a voice in this. When I saw Saudi Arabia's crown prince wants to build a 75 mile long city, that is two buildings extending across the mountain and they're going to displace all these native tribes and people are going to be packed into these two buildings. Like that is the most dystopian view of the future I have ever seen in my life. Like how could that be good for us? I don't know. What do you say? About I love that? <laughs> that you're saying this because 
you know, these are the things that, you know, I'm ranting about right now because we're, right. we, it's frustrating because, you know, we're sitting four to seven hours more day and we were sitting already too much. We're finding that the data is showing that people are actually increasingly lonely. It's the loneliest they've ever been right now. They're getting more unhealthy, more lonely, more burnout. And the antidote is to put them on drugs or antidepressants to keep them more sick. And, and it traps everybody in this basic, horrible cycle. Well, yeah. And the connection piece is maybe the biggest effect. I think you see this on youth. Obviously, mental health issues with youth has just exploded. But also, when you look at the data around how people are feeling and sort of leadership challenges for remote work is that, you know, what's happened is that some companies have gone fully remote and they're saying that their biggest challenge is connections and connectedness and the loneliness that their remote workers are feeling, feeling like their career's atrophying, like they don't have any connection to their boss. A lot of young professionals are quitting just because this is where you'd meet like your spouse or you might meet your best friends in those first few years of working is like just, mm -hmm. you know, serendipitous moments and being together and, and seeing each other face to face. And there's even just really important data. It's really cool. Dr. Jeremy Balenson from Stanford Media Lab, he did this research project on Zoom burnout. And he said that there's four reasons why. One of them is that we're constantly staring at ourselves, which is not healthy. He said <laughs> that, and we I was reading some data and that Botox has actually called this the Zoom boom. The pandemic was the Zoom boom. <laughs> there, really? That's their sales have gone up 90% and they're calling it the Zoom boom. We're God. constantly critiquing ourselves. Social comparison is not healthy. And then also he found that we're not getting the same interactions. You have to look at whites of eyes. You need to look at each other face to face. But he said the only time in real life that we would be this close to each other in person is if we were mating someone or fighting them. <laughs> so he says we're actually in this hyper aroused right. subconscious state all day long. So we're like, you know, think about your one-on-ones with your boss or, you know, a coworker, and you don't realize that you're actually like feeling triggered by this communication. And yeah. I thought that was so fascinating. So there's all these reasons why this communication is totally unhealthy and that we're now trying to use it so that we can be more disconnected. And even just that we haven't stopped and said, do we need to have a full hour on Zoom every time we meet? Or can we invite people to not show up and that's okay? How do we politely decline a meeting? How do we start to create space? If you're hosting a meeting, make sure that the people that are supposed to be there are there. And if not, create a really, put it on yourself to create a really scheduled agenda so that you can say, hey, Joe from accounting, you can jump on from 1230 to 1245, but that's all I need you for. Instead of just having everyone in a room in the same place, the same time sitting down, you know, why not walk and talk with someone and go for a 15 minute walk? Why not have a stand up meeting? You know, why don't you meet in person? I mean, and having hybrid offices where people can show up when they want isn't healthy either, because then they go into a ghost town, and they're back on meetings, but just in the office. So we really leaders are really challenged right now with figuring out how to do it better. And, you know, we can, we can do it better. We don't have to just be forced into this equation. We really do have this opportunity to be way better than we are right now. Now is the, not the time to follow the herd. No. <laughs> because the herd's being led by someone and, the, and that someone may not have your best interests because they don't know. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but 
That's fascinating. We got to wrap this up. I want to be sensitive to your time. But if someone's listening to this and they're like, God, Jennifer just hit a chord with me. I think I'm burned out. What should they do? What's their next step? Well, first, you know, really labeling if you're burned out is it's good. It's to look for these those three major signs. So how depleted am I? Am I exhausted by two or three in the afternoon and feel like I'm just completely wiped out? Do I feel like in the morning uh, it's hard to motivate? You know, like we just found out that showers are down by 30% this last year. People aren't, you know, changing clothes or showering. Like really? this is, yeah. And it's a sign that- I guess we're saving water. <laughs> there's a benefit to that and no driving, but people are just working during their commute time. But yeah, there's benefits to that. But I think it's what they're, they're trying to correlate it to is that people are probably feeling depressed, you know, and depression increases this lack of motivation. And so you're, when you're depressed and anxious, you don't, you stop caring about those things and you just want to stay in bed. You know, are you feeling like you need stimulants to keep awake in the day and then sort of downers like alcohol and these other types of things that, you know, are you eating emotionally? Those types of things usually signal, okay, I'm trying to come down, you know, at the end of the day. And do you feel dread on, you know, going into work? Do you feel like you're disengaged from work, like you're emotionally distanced from the goals? And are you using language like, a lot of language of permanence, always and never. Like, are you saying, I'm always, this is always going to be like this. It's never going to change. And I'm always running into the same issue. Or you're using I language, very isolated language. Like, I can't do anything about this. I never get any help. Or, you know, that kind of language usually signifies that you're feeling sort of hopeless. You're feeling isolated. You feel like you lack control or agency. So that kind of stuff, thinking about that, and then just like that cynicism piece, that hopelessness piece, all of those things, if you're feeling that and you're feeling it frequently and frequently means two to three times a week, then you're probably in a position where you're very close to hitting that wall and you need to talk to someone. If you feel comfortable talking to your boss, you should, but a lot of people say that they can't. So sometimes it's just going to anonymous sources through your EAP, teletherapy, being able to, you know, talk to someone is good. There's counseling groups. Sometimes organizations have a mental first aid support group within, you know, peer group within inside your organization. So it is about reaching out and understanding that this is a very serious issue. You know, people get very sick and there's real consequences and catastrophic consequences to being to being at that point where you hit the wall. You know, we can sustain feeling symptoms of burnout for a period of time, but there's a point when it adds up and you hit the wall and then it can mean PTSD. It can mean needing pharmacological support. It can mean therapeutics. It can mean, you know, that can mean a lot of um, time and healing and it impacts your confidence in your job and your career, all these things. So we need to be better about diagnosing and then asking to get external support before it, it gets too far. So self-awareness and then self-advocacy really are the first steps. And then and then from there, you can identify the, the triggers and causes and start to work on both the, psych the psycho-emotional as well as the systemic things that are causing and try to remove the friction and remove the, yes. the triggers. And then for leaders, I think the leaders, this is very powerful because, you know, awareness of what your organization is doing or what your, you or your key leaders are doing that might be leading to burnout. And a lot of that is unconscious, like you said, it's a bias, right? Because of our male-dominated kind of hyper-performance-oriented culture. So to be aware that that's not healthy and to work toward bringing more balance, maybe first into your own life, because a lot of CEOs and leaders, you know, are, are right, right there and they've got maybe some more skills that, that other people don't have so they can ward off burnout, but it'll show up right in some ways. And a lot of my clients are high performance leaders and 
man, they're not sleeping well. Like we have a major sleep problem in our culture. And then, you know, they overcompensate that with hardcore workouts, which then is pumping more cortisol into their system, which is leading them not sleeping well. And this is a train wreck waiting to happen for a lot of people, right? It is. And I, and I love that you said that because sleep, it plays a huge role. I mean, just, you know, sleep deprivation one day and we're already, you know, basically not functioning at our same level and capacity, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint. But we as leaders think that the the idea of a break is um, non-productive time, you know, that rest isn't productive. We need to start thinking of rest as being part of productivity. Like that is actually holistically part of it. Leaders too. I mean, here's a couple tips for leaders. Leaders need to model all of these behaviors. They need to model turning off or else the invisible pressure will just exist. And employees can't be what they can't see. They need to see you actually behaving in the way that you want them to behave and how you care for them. You have to care for yourself first, you know, that mask on yourself first. And then we also as as leaders have to recognize that we aren't mental health professionals. And I think that's why we we kind of move away from those conversations with our teams, maybe, or we don't, we feel nervous about having those conversations because we think, what happens if I met with crisis or what happens if I can't solve this? And like it, it evolves and I'm in a situation where I can't answer that person's questions. Or, and that's scary for a lot of leaders. What leaders need to be able to just vocalize to their team is I'm not a mental health professional, but I'm a, your mental health conduit. So I know what is in your EAP to give you supports. I know what is maybe a local support for anyone that's dealing with BIPOC issues or LGBTQ plus, you know, issues or whatever it is that they're dealing with, who knows what that is, but I can help, you know, you're a parent or single mom, what is your thing that I can help you with? If you're dealing with financial stress, well, this is a support system we have inside of our EAP. And then take mental health first aid. It's a six-week course that anybody can take, but leaders should really take it. They can have the right posture in those conversations. They can have the right language to use in those conversations. They can de-escalate. They can be the conduit. So we have a job as leaders to be uh, to be knowledgeable in the products or the services that we offer to our shareholders or to our teams, but we should be knowledgeable in the human part of our relationship with people. And that means just becoming knowledgeable on the topic of mental health. I love that. And also, I mean, it's a, it's a really important step for leaders today is you don't have all the answers, right? Perfectionism actually is a very unhealthy thing for your teams. Right? So you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to solve the problems. Model the behavior by going and seeking help yourself. Get a therapist, right? Take time off. You know, in fact, there's now a lot of research about you, you should take time off after every important thing you do. Like every deep work training, every Zoom call, take a few minutes even to breathe, to walk around the, you know, the office, to get outside, because your, your brain needs that time to really integrate what you learned. Otherwise, if you just go straight to the next thing, you lose a lot. And so there's real, real, like you said, extraordinary benefits, not just health benefits, but decision-making benefits to being able to take time off so that your subconscious can assimilate and then feed back to your conscious mind, you know, the right information as opposed to you just suppressing that. Well, and it, it makes you higher performing. And we've looked at all the data. You want to be a high performing person, you know, and you're doing all these other things to be high performing. And if you're missing this very significant part that actually is giving your brain the power to be high performing, you know, you can be as physically high performing as you want. But if you are struggling because of stress, making simple decisions, or you're more volatile, and you're not being mindful in the way that you lead, I mean, you're not actively listening to people, 
you're losing so much of your momentum. And so high performance needs to be in the rest piece and the modeling of the behavior and self-care all need to be considered as part of the expectations that you place on yourself to be high performing. Thanks so much. And so the book, uh, The Burnout Epidemic, um, named 10 Best New Management Books in 2022 by Thinker50. That's awesome. Shortlisted for the 2021 Outstanding Works of Literature Award. Congratulations, by the way. Outstanding work. Uh, what's next for you? There's a lot of stuff that I'm working on, but I have signed with Harvard Business Review Press and I'm working on the next book. It's kind of like, you know, you as a mom, like you make a choice or as a parent, you know, you make a choice to have a child in those first, whatever, you know, six months of their life. You're like, this was the stupidest decision I ever made. I'm so exhausted. And then you forget and a year or two later, you have another. So that's kind of like writing a book. You sort of forget how painful it is. So that you can, you know, do it again. But yeah, it's passion. That's awesome. Well, good luck with that. And um, we'll share all this information, but where can folks um, learn more about you or where would you like them to kind of reach out to you on either social media or website? Or You know, everything is really on the website, which is jennifer-moss.com. Very easy to remember. Jennifer, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time today. Wonderful work and it's very important conversation. So you know, we'll do our part and uh, we'll get the word out and share your, your messages and your work. And um, let's talk again when, you, when you're when you done and some of the pain has resided from that next book. I would love that. <laughs> it was so great chatting with you. This is such a great combo. Thank you. I agree. Likewise. What a fascinating interview with Jennifer Moss, author of The Burnout Epidemic. Learned some really interesting things. 252% more meetings since we went virtual. Zoom went from 10 million to 300 million users a day in one month when the pandemic lockdown started. We talked about the need to be your own boss and to learn that every no is in service to a bigger yes. So learn how to say no, no to overworking, no to unrealistic deadlines, no to projects you shouldn't take on. As Jennifer says, you can have anything, but not everything. Tons of great stuff in this interview. The show notes and transcripts are on our site at markdevine.com. Videos up at the YouTube channel, which you can find at our site as well, markdevine.com slash YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Devine and on Instagram and Facebook at Real Mark Devine or on my LinkedIn profile. If you're not subscribed to my newsletter, Divine Inspiration, it comes out every Tuesday with a synopsis of our podcast of the week, my blog, other uh, shows that I'm on, and other interesting things that come across my desk that I think you'd find valuable. So check it out. Go to markdevine.com to subscribe if you're not on it and share it with your friends. Shout out to my amazing team. Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell, who bring this show to you every week with incredible guests like Jennifer. Reviews and ratings are very, very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider doing so. Wherever you listen to this, help us get to 5,000 five-star reviews this year. Thanks for being part of the change you want to see in the world. Clearly, we're in a very complex, challenging, and changing world. We have to have a discussion about things like the nature of work and what we want our future to look like. Jennifer and I had a great discussion about how it feels like we're being marshaled like sheep toward a dystopian future, technocratic, isolated, connected constantly. And it's not good for human beings to do that. And it's not what we want, but it feels like it's what is just being prescribed for us. So it's time for us to have a discussion and to push back against it and to co-create the future that we want to see. And we can do that now at scale by having conversations like this and sharing this show and others like it and being the change we want to see in the world at scale. Till next time, this is Mark Devine, and I really appreciate you. Booyah.